Life Audio. So much has changed in the world, as we know, but particularly things have changed as it regards Christianity. There was a time not too long ago in our history that to be a Christian in our society uh, brought with it some respect. To say that you were a church-going person, you had a church-going family, you were involved in your local church community, it meant something positive. If you have looked around at all, if you have lived even a moment in the, in the last couple of years, you know that that has changed. And yet the question really needs to be answered, why has it changed? Why is it that the world now looks at Christians so differently than it once did? And what can we do about it? These are important questions. As Christians, we've yielded so much ground to the culture around us, and it's time for us to take a different approach. Today on the March or Die show, I have the privilege of interviewing a guest who thinks about this, has written about this, and who talks often about it. I'm excited to share that interview with you, and we'll jump into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hello and welcome back to the March or Die show today. Again, very glad to have you joining me and looking forward to the interview that you are about to hear. Uh, I'm so thankful to be able to reach out to folks who think big thoughts, and view culture so clearly and understand the path forward for us. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you in just a minute. Before we get there, however, if you have not yet subscribed to the show, please subscribe. Uh, I hope that you love the show. I hope that you even share this content out with others. But if you're not yet subscribed, that's what you need to do. Go ahead and subscribe right now. That would be fantastic. Go ahead and subscribe. And uh, that will help you. That will help me. Then take some time. Go to jeremystalnicker.com, jeremystalnicker.com. You can find uh, all of the stuff that I'm connected to, my social contacts, my blog is there, uh, all of uh, the information about me and the shows that I'm involved in, the work that I do with Mighty Oaks, all of that is on jeremystalnicker.com. So please go ahead and check that out. Um, Probably a year ago now, I had a conversation with today's guest, Aaron Wren. Aaron uh, has uh, written a book. It's a fantastic book. It's titled Life in the Negative World, Life in the Negative World. 
And Aaron has a, a very unique perspective, I think, unique perspective, uh, a studied perspective, very intellectually um, invested perspective on Christianity, the church, uh, the, the Christian movement historically, uh, and really understanding where we are today. And not only does he understand where we are, but he has a prescription for moving forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for his perspective, and I wanted to share this conversation with you and have this conversation with him to share with you. Because so much of what we hear about the church and so much of what we even experience as Christians is negative. And if we're honest, uh, it really is. <laughs> we have uh, allowed ourselves. Now, whether that was us or generations before us, we're probably complicit as well. We've allowed ourselves to be more and more conformed to the world around us instead of uh, changing the world around us. We as the church in so many ways have lost power and influence in culture. And yet there is a path forward. And Aaron really lays this out so well, and I'm very grateful to be able to have this conversation with him. Uh, Aaron is uh, a writer. He is a consultant. He is a co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer. Uh, he's done so much good work in the area of Christianity and understanding the issues around the church, understanding specifically men's issues in the church, and I'm very grateful to have him on. This is a very helpful episode and one that will give you some of the tools and the perspectives you need to move forward in a world that so often seems increasingly against the truth, and particularly Christians who hold the truth. So very grateful for this. Please enjoy this interview with my guest, Aaron Wren. Aaron, thank you for joining me, man. Really appreciate this and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Let's uh, let, let's start in the beginning. There, there are a lot of things to talk about. Um, you have a new book out, and, and there's a lot to talk about there. But for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's give um, some background. I, I don't know. Uh, I can say some background. You've done so much. But um, how you got into what you're doing and, and kind of what drives you as you even sit down to write a book like the one that you just finished? Sure. Well, uh, I grew up in rural southern Indiana, about four miles outside of a town of uh, less than 100 people. Uh, and then after I went to school, I had essentially three careers. Uh, first was management consulting. Uh, I spent 15, 18 years in that field, mostly with Accenture. Uh, then I pivoted out of that into public policy, where I was really focused on urban areas, state and local policy. Um, you know, I spent most of my adult life in big cities. Uh, after coming out of the rural environment, and that really fascinated me. And I was with the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York. And then I, I did a kind of a, a second pivot now to where I'm focused primarily on research and writing about the future of the evangelical church, often with an emphasis on sort of men's issues and why men aren't going to church. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at American Reformer, which is a Protestant nonprofit, yeah. uh, and also a writer, uh, consultant, uh, et cetera. Um, if you want to sign up for my newsletter. That's good. Um, Aaron, can you talk about your, your faith journey a little bit? That's really very important to this conversation, obviously. But from a faith perspective, how did you come up? And when you start looking at you know issues in the church and issues among Christian men and, and some of those issues that uh, we'll talk about here in a minute, um, how did you come to gain your worldview or your perspective on that? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, again, I grew up in rural uh, southern Indiana. Uh, I'm actually from Catholic peasant stock on both sides of my family, uh, German and Sicilian. And I was baptized Catholic, but my mother got very involved in the Catholic charismatic renewal movement in the 70s, ended up leaving the Catholic church. So I never even made it to first communion. 
And I was raised in a uh, Assemblies of God church. So I was raised in sort of a culture war Pentecostal church uh, growing up. Now, as an adult, I basically wasn't really living for God most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, after reconnecting with my faith, I was living in big cities and ended up um, becoming essentially Presbyterian. So I'm Presbyterian today and was heavily influenced by Tim Keller in that, you know, I was a writer on cities and um, somebody introduced me. I was actually attending a sort of non-denominational Baptist Armenian type church in Chicago. The pastor's like, well, you know, you like cities. You should pay attention to this Tim Keller guy. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll check him out. And I was uh, blown away that he had seemed to have a very accurate understanding of cities. I'm like, I, I feel like I found somebody that's really on my wavelength. So he was very influential, I guess, in me migrating in sort of a Presbyterian direction. Um, and so that's sort of it. So I, I sort of have like a foot in both sort of the rural culture war camp and also kind of call it the urban cultural engagement camp of evangelicalism. Yeah. There. What caused you to become interested in uh, specifically men's, I'll say men's issues, but, uh, you know, men in the church and men in Christianity? Well, there's a couple of things. About a decade ago, I saw that um, men were turning to online influencers, but not the church. So it's been known yeah. for a long time that yeah. like men don't typically like church, didn't like, didn't like religion. And yet I saw like, wow, these influencers are starting to get big audiences. And this was even before Jordan Peterson. I mean, some of these yeah. people had audiences in the hundreds of thousands. And I'm like, what's going on there? And of course, today we see that again, Jordan Peterson had millions of followers, Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, the infamous Andrew Tate. Uh, whose content has been apparently watched by 80% of teenage British boys. So some of these guys are huge, but there's a big pyramid under them. And I said, what's the disconnect here? And, you know, I sort of realized, you know, just from, uh, it's a very long story I didn't want to go into, but, you know, I sort of realized a lot of what the church was saying about gendered men just wasn't accurate. (laughs) They were giving out, like, not very good advice. And there were a lot of of differences, I think, uh, between some of these influencers in the church, uh, somewhere the, to the advantage of the church, obviously promoting a moral vision, a mm. Christ-centered vision, et cetera, whereas many of these uh, men's influencers are promoting sure. evil, frankly. Yeah. But they also had some you know, more uh, accurate insights. So, for example, I'll give you one example. Um, you know, you'd hear in church, uh, I'm, not, I'm just going to quote a nameless pastor here, a big-name pastor who, who wrote an essay once saying, I keep saying it. Godliness is sexy to godly people. Jordan Peterson in his book, 12 Rules for Life, said girls are attracted to boys who win status contests with other boys. And I'm like, well, which one of those is more accurate? Yeah. I think clearly Peterson, right? I mean, which we had all watch this, um, you know, Taylor Swift romance with the guy who's, you know, the superstar football yeah. player, Super yeah. Bowl winner. Like, there's a reason that happens. And I feel like a lot of times in the church, we spend a lot of time talking about the way we think the world ought to work mm. without actually explaining to people how it actually does work. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a big disconnect there. So right. that, that's really how I got got interested in, in the topic. And then I, it sort of grew from there. And I started really turning my essentially analytical lens on the evangelical church. And, um, you know, it started developing insights that people really resonated with, particularly this three worlds model that really has been maybe the most popular thing I've ever written. When, when did, when did that shift happen? It, it, you know, historically, traditionally Christian men 
were men. They were providers of families, providers of you know communities, and those who stood up and those who led and those who fought and those who died, those were Christian men. And we've come so far from that. Was there a moment that shift pl- took place or was it a, a gradual slide over time? And what benefit is there to the church kind of finding themselves in that I don't love this phrase, but the feminization of Christianity or the feminization yeah, yeah. Of, of church work. What, what's the benefit to the church, and how did we get to that place? Well, the church has skewed female for a very long time, right? Uh, several hundred years. And so um, there's a lot of different schools of thought on why that is. Um, but I, what I think is interesting is around 1900, excuse me, 1800 uh, in England, probably a little later in the United States, um, this academic Callum Brown, who wrote a book, The Death of Christian Britain, he talked about how there was sort of a, a shift in piety, whereas piety used to be considered essentially a male virtue. It came to be viewed as a female virtue. And he, you know, he went through a lot of um, talk about this, particularly with regards like angels used to be portrayed as very, you know, masculine male figures. And then right. angels sort of became when you say someone is an angel, you're typically thinking of a woman, right? <laughs> right. Pops in, pops into your head. And I think a lot of this was uh, the result of industrialization. So there was sort of industrialization. And as people streamed into the cities, there was a lot of social dysfunction in terms of, you know, uh, you know, particularly male dysfunction around alcoholism and not taking care of their families. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, the church in England, and, and of course, we've basically followed their lead started to essentially demonize men. It's basically like women are the natural repositories of virtue and the guardian of the the sanctity of the home and the children. And the primary threat to that is the man. He's the one who's engaged in drinking, gambling, yeah. all these other things, which to be fair, there was a lot of that going on, but certainly they went way too far, I, I think, on that. Um, and that sort of, uh, I think, attitude still you know, comes through today even though, frankly, our world is quite different. For example, um, about 70% of all divorces are initiated by women. Right. You, you will never hear a pastor give right. that statistic. Right. Now, they can, you, know, you can go in and say, you know, maybe some of them were abused. Maybe some of them, you know, there's other things going on, affairs. But there's, I mean, the statistic isn't even acknowledged. It's sort of like treated as if family breakdown is a phenomenon of like men running off with their secretary yeah. or something like yeah. that. And so- um, you know, just that's what I mean. Like the church doesn't even like seem to be aware of or ever talk about basic facts. And so when you read a book like Tim Keller's marriage book, you know, The Meaning of Marriage, you read a book full of statistics, you know, about gender and marriage and never once mentions that women initiate the vast majority of divorces. You that's wonder what the what else they're not telling you. Right. Yeah. So I, I think there's some of that. There's some of that. I also think. Maybe we're getting off track here from the discussion. No, I also think the. um you know, there was a big transition, obviously, with feminism, the second wave feminism of, you know, the 1970s. There was a big uh, evangelical component to that as well, which sort of led to a sort of egalitarian gender theology for a lot of churches, which sort of denied male headship in the home. And then, you know, women can be pastors. And yeah. then sort of the response yeah. to that, sort of the the people who rejected that sort of congealed around this position that became known as complementarianism. In which they say, you know, men and women are complement different but complementary, and you know, men are the head of the home, and only men can be pastors. However, in the way that they essentially defined that, 
they emptied it of most of its content by redefining what it meant to be the head of the home uh, from the way it would have been perceived back in, say, the 1950s or the 1850s, for that matter, towards saying you're supposed to be a servant leader. So in essence, there's no actual um, authority. Authority really doesn't exist in that construct. The sociologist James Davison Hunter uh, even once uh, said, uh, you know, uh, essentially that authority was reduced to an administrative technicality. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that, that went in there. I mean, it would take books to talk about. In yeah. fact, entire books have been written on it. It's yeah. a fascinating topic. Uh, but I think, you know, whether you people like my analysis or not, there's a whole chapter on gender in the book, actually, because my new book, because this is one we got to get right, because yes. people are not getting married. They're not staying married. And if we want to have different outcomes in the church versus the world, we have to rectify our teachings on gender and marriage, yeah. where I think all of the camps have significant error. And you know, even if you don't agree with me, again, look at the fact that like all these men are glued to these influencers with millions right. of followers, yeah, you're right. and they're not going to the church. Like, what are those guys doing yeah. that we're not doing? It's really interesting. You talk about that too, and Jordan Peterson is someone that I've respected for his stand on a lot of issues. But uh, I guess it was last year they did that. Uh, Jordan Peterson and um, oh, man, so many others. <laughs> um, I can picture them. I can't think of all their names. Did that roundtable on the Old Testament, and they talked through, I mean, basic theological issues. And to my knowledge, none of them would profess to be believers, at least not, you know, as I understand, right. having a relationship with God through Christ and having submitted to His leadership in their lives. And yet, they are the thought leaders in our culture in this area of theology. And it, it is a very interesting shift to see take place. But what is also interesting is to watch, as you just mentioned, so many men are tuning in and listening when they should be really going to the church. And we've we've yielded so much ground. Um, I think it was, you know, maybe 2015. It's hard to remember exactly when Jordan Peterson t took off. But yeah. one of the things that made him famous was his Genesis lectures. Yeah, And I remember right. thinking, right. I found this guy's Genesis lectures on YouTube, and I'm like, this guy's giving a series of two-hour lectures each yeah. on Genesis, and hundreds yeah. of thousands of people are watching them. Yeah, It's kind of crazy. And in fact, he's doing a tour right now. Uh, I, I decided to go uh, justify the uh, trip as R&D uh, on the Indianapolis <laughs> stop. It's called We Who Wrestle With God. Yeah, I saw that. So yeah. I want to I see it. Now, I will say, I really think Peterson kind of peaked around 2018. And then he had a nervous breakdown yeah. of some sort. And he, when he, he came back, he's more angry, more political. Um, and, and so I, yeah. you know, I don't, I, I mean, I don't think his, he's quite as, as on his game as he used to be, to be quite honest, but he still has maybe an even bigger following than he yeah. had before, you know, now that he's uh, signed on with Daily Wire. Well, and that, and that begs the question, I think, for Christian, you know, pastors is, we spend so much time trying to be creative or trying to be cute instead of just trying to be truthful and confronting culture with scripture, which is the truth. And we're losing our voice to people who oddly are doing that, but are not professing Christians. And it's been a very interesting, man, very interesting thing to, to watch. Um, I, I could, I could drag you down that, that road all day, all day long. And I won't um, because I want to talk about um, 
talk about your book, Life in the Negative World. Um, can you um, kind of give us I a actually have a picture. I have a, uh, there a it picture is. here. I'll hold it up. There you go. Okay, see, and this is the reason. If you're listening and not watching to the video, we were talking about this before we started. You need to watch the video because you just missed that if you didn't see it. Yeah. But uh, Life in the Negative World, um, that's your new book. Let's, let's talk about that. Again, such an important topic. Yeah, so um, I came up with a model to help explain how the world's view of Christianity has changed. You know, a lot of the time we talk about how the church views the world. So there's a famous mo a model from the 1950s by H. Richard Niebuhr called the Christ and Culture Model, hmm. where it's like five different ways churches, Christians, have viewed culture uh, as compared to the church. Well, my model is really the opposite. It's how the, it's how the world views Christianity in the church. And I developed this starting in 2014. I originally published it in 2017 in my newsletter. It was actually well-received then and went viral. Then I got uh, asked to update it, and it was in the February 2022 issue of First Things Magazine, where it was one of the biggest articles in the history yeah. of the magazine, uh, maybe the most talked-about article in the history of the magazine. And then, of course, I've turned it into this book. And so the, basically the, 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 the synopsis is this. America never had a state church like they did in Europe, but we did have a sort of softly institutionalized generic Protestantism as our default national religion in the country for most of our history. If, you know, look at the 1950s, for example, uh, half of all adults attended church every week. And this was really the high watermark, actually, of church attendance in the country. We had prayer and Bible reading in the public schools. Yeah. We were adding in God we trust. Uh, to our money under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. There's a, a sort of famous photo that periodically goes viral, and it's the skyline of New York City with lights in the windows of the skyscrapers lit up in giant crosses for Easter. Yeah. That was taken yeah. in 1956. Uh, and then in the 1960s, this started to become uh, unraveled, and Christianity's status in society went into decline. And it's a decline that continues to today. And I divide this period of decline between 1964 and the present into three phases or worlds that I call the positive world, the neutral world, and the negative world. The positive world, which lasts from 1964 to 1994, is a period of decline for Christianity. I want to be, make that clear. Church attendance is in decline. You know, the sexual revolution is happening. And yet, Christianity is still basically viewed positively. Right. To be known as a good church-going man makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. Christian moral norms are still the basic moral norms of society, and if you break them, you can get in trouble. 1994, we hit a tipping point. We entered what I call the neutral world, which lasted from 1994 to 2014. Where Christianity is no longer seen positively, but it's not really seen negatively yet either. Yeah. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic public square. Yeah. And then kind of Christian moral norms sort of have residual force. And then in 2014, we had a second tipping point and enter what I call the negative world, where for the first time in the 400-year history of America, official elite culture now views Christianity negatively, or at least certainly skeptically. To be known as a Bible-believing Christian doesn't help you, you know, get a job on Wall Street or Silicon Valley, maybe just the opposite. Christian moral norms are now expressly repudiated, and in fact are now viewed as the leading threat to the new kind of public moral order. And this has been a very dislocating shift, this entry into the negative world for evangelicals. 
who are um, really having a lot of uh, sort of internal decision, dissension, and even a crack up maybe over it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're in that period of time now, the negative world. And, you know, it's living in the negative world. What do we do? <laughs> right? Because I think that leads us to the, okay, well, this is where we are. Is this the end? Is there something we can do from here? Do we take the position that uh, so many Christians have taken where I'm just going to hang on and do the best that I can and, you know, hunker down and hope Jesus comes back? <laughs> what 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 do we do? How do we live in this world in a positive way? Sure. Um, you know, that's actually what three quarters of the book is about. Right. And so, um, you know, in my articles and uh, previous publications, I really talked about kind of the analysis of the world. But I, I didn't get to talk as much about what to do about it. So in this book, I really wanted to give people some ideas um, really across three domains, the personal, the institutional, and the missional. That is to say, how should you live individually and, you know, as, a, as your families? Institutionally, how should our churches, ministries, businesses, et cetera, operate? And uh, then missionally, how do you do mission? How do you engage in, in culture? you know, politics, et cetera. And um, so I give some starter ideas across all of those. And I think it's first, you know, um, we should talk about what people have, how they have been responding, Uh, which is to say, I don't think that evangelicals have yet fully took the, taken the measure of the negative world and started creating strategies specifically for it. Um, You know, the one strategy that has really been laid out for the negative world is Rod Dreher's Benedict option, which he laid out in his book from 2017. And evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict option. I think part of it, you know, Rod is Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic. And I think he, he'd be the first person to tell you, he doesn't know anything about evangelicalism. <laughs> so I think he didn't really understand like how monastic imagery might be perceived there. Yeah. And uh, so there's a few things like that, but nevertheless, I really just think it was more of a denial of reality than it was. Uh, about those things. So, for example, Christianity Today commissioned four people to give their uh, views on the book, and all four of them had significant um, uh, criticisms of it. And so instead, what people have done is sort of double down on what they were already doing. And so one of the things I lay out in the book are the three things that evangelicals have been doing, uh, three sort of strategies or emphases, um, you know, the culture war and seeker sensitivity, going back to the uh, the positive world from the 1970s. So I, mean, I think of that as the religious right and the non-denominational suburban megachurch and then cultural engagement from, you know, the 1990s to the present, which you could think of as kind of the urban church yeah. uh, in many respects. And, you know, kind of what's happened is people have sort of doubled down on their strategies a little bit. And then those kind of strategies have been deforming, I think, under the pressures of the negative world. And that has caused... Um, a lot of things. One, it's caused uh, people to, um, you know, deconstruct their faith. So there's been kind of been a deconstruction movement. There's also been a sort of realignment. Good example here would be a guy like David French. Ten years ago, you would have said David French was a hardcore culture warrior. Yeah. yeah. Today, he's a New York Times columnist who spends a lot of time bashing the culture war people. Right. right. And then, and again, and I think what that highlights is intra-evangelical conflict. There's a lot of people basically attacking each other. The culture war has now moved internally to 
the church. And so one of the things I wanted to do, which we can go into in a, in a minute here, is think about how do we step back and, and think about things from a negative world specific scenario? So, man, there's so much there. <laughs> That's why people need to read the book. Um, so let's get into it. How do they? Well, I, I there's a lot of stuff in here. Um, you know, I get the benefit from the fact that uh, I saw all the criticisms people leveled at Rod Dreher, and I said, I'll try to avoid uh, the landmines mm. he, he stepped on. And he had something like 35 ideas, I think, in his book. He gave a lot of ideas. Yeah. I try to give a more concise set of ideas um, so that I still think there's like, you know, enough of them that it would be hard to go through right now. But sure. I think there are um, three key themes that I would stress, you know, of kind of response. The first is what I call adopting a posture of exploration. So what I mean by that is, you know, we're entering this sort of unknown territory and we have to be comfortable in the unknown and get used to walking more by faith than by sight. Mm. And so to get a sense of how it changed, you go back to the 1970s when Bill Hybels started Willow Creek Community Church in, in suburban Chicago, one of the biggest churches in the country, super hyper successful. He originally went door to door in suburban Chicago, at, you know, asking people why they didn't go to church. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I'll design the church that they'll actually attend. I don't think our problems today are as simple as doing market research like right. that. You're going right. to go ask somebody if they, why don't you go to church? What are you going to, you're probably going to get some stuff thrown at you. Maybe like, what are you doing here? Get lost. <laughs> right. And uh, so I use the, I use the example uh, or the, the parallel of the Israelites crossing the Jordan river into the promised land. This is a generation that had spent their entire lives in the wilderness. Maybe there weren't great things in the wilderness, but it was familiar. They knew it. There were nice things like manna showing up every morning. Yeah. yeah. Now they're going into this unknown place full of people they know are not going to give it up without a fight. And so there's that great line in Joshua, follow the ark because you have not been this way before. We've not mm. been this way before. Mm. So we have to be comfortable, I think, with that and have this, yeah, this posture of, again, walk more walking by faith and by sight. A second one is to um, rebalance our emphasis away from relevance and transformation towards being a counterculture. So let me explain what I mean by that. In his book, Center Church, which was his church planting manual, Tim Keller identified essentially four basic styles of church. Um, there was um, relevance, which tries to, you know, I think that's pretty straightforward to say. Right. It sees kind of God at work in the world. It's trying to kind of synchronize with the currents of culture, et cetera. He would have put the mainline denominations in into relevance. He would have put the seeker sensitives uh, churches, I think, into relevance, which is very fair. I would also put these urban cultural engagement churches mostly into the relevance category, although they often had transformational aspirations. Transformationalists want to see the kingdom of God expand out into the world and have it transform the world. And so he would have put the culture warriors into the transformationalist bucket because they want to use politics to transform the culture. And, you know, again, some of the uh, cultural engagement aspirations are also here. And counterculture would be something in its most extreme form, like the Amish, people who want to create, focus more on our citizenship in heaven than in the world. You know, we're, we're exiles called to create a community apart from the world. Uh, 
He also talks about something called Two Kingdoms, which is more Lutheran. We won't talk about that. And my point is we've been – evangelicalism has been extremely focused on relevance yes. yep. and transformation. And the assumption seems to be the following. The church is great. We've got the truth. We're healthy. And the people who need help are in the world. They're the ones that need to be saved. They're the ones that need to be restructured. Whereas I would say, one, we're much internally weaker than people like to think. Secondly, in this negative world, you know, we have to more self-consciously steward the strength and health of our own community in order to have a, a strong base from which to do missions. And so, you know, you go back to the 1950s, you know, you could just sort of rely on the mainstream institutions of society to reinforce your values. You know, the public schools, you know, had prayer. They, you know, and even after the prayer was gone, you could basically assume they were going to teach people basic moral values as you understood them. That's not true anymore. You know, when you're a moral minority and not a moral majority, then you have to think like a minority. And so we have to make that transition to minority mindset, which is to say when you're a minority, that doesn't mean you hate the majority. But what it does mean is you have to self-consciously care and steward more of your own community. Uh, and so the example I use there is early 20th century Catholics. You know, in America at that time was kind of an anti-Catholic country, very strongly Protestant. And so, you know, a lot of these, you know, European immigrant Catholic communities said, if we want to sustain Catholic life in America, we have to create our own schools. We have to create our own universities. We have to create our own fraternal societies. We have to have behaviors, practices that demarcate and sustain our community life. We need to live in the same places. And so I think, you know, now evangelicals need to think much more about that. And I think the Christian education movement is an example of doing that, where, you know, organically people are checking out of the mainstream institutions and, um, you know, they're checking out of the mainstream institutions and saying, well, we need to take care of our own business. And then, um, we we can we can dive into those and I got one more for you. Yeah, please. And then the the, the third one is um, staying prudentially engaged in sort of culture and politics. You know, I think again the, the there's been basically two two approaches I think that have happened in, in the last ten years. One is I call double down on culture war. The idea being that we just need to take the gloves off and uh, this time we'll fight harder. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's very realistic. I think we have to realize like your positions aren't popular, <laughs> yeah, you know? And I think yeah, we saw that. Yeah. We've seen that in all the abortion votes. And then the second is sort of promoted more by the cultural engagement side, which is what I call the sort of an Anabaptist-influenced approach to culture, which is basically to completely disengage from pol- pol- politics. It's like, you know, we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not citizens of the United States. We're exiles in this world. We lose down here. That's one of their lines. <laughs> Christ came to give up power, not to exercise power. And there's some truth in that. However, I noticed that these people never seem to apply it to things like social justice, which they remain militant about. It's uh, highly opportunistically applied. And this idea that you can just go run and hide uh, and hope nobody finds you, I don't yeah. think is realistic. Yeah. Man, there. <sighs> Uh, again, I mean, we've had this conversation in the past, and it, it's so rich. I, I think, you know, a lot of this, and I, I wrote a lot of what you said on on your second point down. Move away from relevance and transformation toward, you know, counter counterculturalism or being countercultural. There, there's a weird, a weird idea of church that 
Sunday mornings that church is designed to reach the lost in our community. And I think if we look at a New Testament, mo- a New Testament model, that's not it at all. Uh, the church is exactly what you, you outlined. It's, it's coming together. It's reinforcing our values. It's uh, strengthening those things that remain and providing a platform to then go into the world and evangelize. And, and somehow over time, we, we've kind of conflated the two and really watered down what the church is and, and lost even our relevance, right? I mean, if we want relevance, right. we've, we've even lost that because we've been running only after that. It's, it's man, so well put. Well, I'm glad you think so. You know, and I'm, you know, I didn't go into the New Testament all that much in the book. One of the things that I decided a long time ago, almost by accident, and it was a, it's a very happy accident, is I just basically said, look, I am not a pastor or a theologian, hmm. so you're not going to hear me making a lot of arguments from the Bible in the book. You know, there's a whole chapter on why we need to be serious about our faith. Right. That's a good chapter. Um, but you can't, you can't leave that one out because you can't say, sure. you know, I think that's a pretty <laughs> sure. safe one to say. Sure. Um, but I do think, you know, when I look at the New Testament church, um, I do see, uh, you know, for example, in the, in the epistles of Paul, one time I wrote down all the commands Paul issued in all of his letters, and I divided them into different categories. And unfortunately, I have to redo this because I can't find a document uh, <laughs> anywhere to save my life. But um, what uh, what he ba- you know what, basically he had relatively few commands that actually dealt with the world outside of the church, hmm. and most of those were about how to accommodate yourself to it with the least amount of disruption. Yeah. So far as it depends on you, yeah. be at peace with all men. Right. You know, pay taxes to whom taxes are due. That sort of thing. Um, and a lot of what he said was about unity in the church and about yes. the way of life of people in the church. He was very concerned about here's how we should live in this new community yeah. called the church. Yeah. And I think it, it's a tremendous um, concern with, with that with that community. And that's where I think a lot of what we, we simply don't have as much of today is a distinct way of life that's different from that that's good um, of the world and one example i give in the book which uh, related to some of the men's issues and family issues earlier is you know we're becoming conformed to the world in terms of our family formation you know we know there's too much porn use in the church yes evangelicals who attend church regularly are less likely to get divorced there's still too much divorce yeah we too have a lot of long-term singles sitting in our pews um and so we need to find a way for people to form and sustain healthy families and have that pattern of life that's different from the world, which is moving in a very post-familial direction. I think part of that is about, okay, great. You don't have to go attack what other people in the world are doing. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm, again, I'm inspired by Paul, who in it's First Corinthians, I think, he says, those who are outside, God judges you worry about what's going on inside a church. You got somebody's like yeah. sleeping with his mother-in-law. Yeah. Why don't you deal deal with that? <laughs> right. Judgment begins with the household of God. And so I think we should I would submit we should be much more concerned about what we're doing yeah. and a lot less concerned about what other people are doing. Yeah, that's so good. Uh Aaron, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh one more time, please tell people where they can follow you and your work and get a hold of this book. Sure. So the book, Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in Anti-Christian Culture, available wherever books are sold. So Amazon will definitely get it to you, but you can get it in any any bookstore. They can get it for you. 
Uh, it's with Zondervan Reflective. And then uh, please sign up for my newsletter, AaronRen.com, A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.com. I put all my writings there so you can get it. And um, it's the best way for, for to stay in touch. That's awesome. Aaron Wren, thank you so much. Um, really appreciate it. I, I think uh, this is the second time we've had this conversation. And, man, it, it's it's um, it, this is a heavy topic because it, it can be very sad. <laughs> but it's, it is very hopeful because it's, it's actionable, right? This is yeah. what we can do. And uh, I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for moving from just talking about the problem to really giving us right. some solutions to move forward. Really appreciate it. Right. Thank you. Look forward to doing it again. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Very grateful for that conversation. And, uh, man, <laughs> talking to Aaron, I could spend, uh, I think, hours uh, walking through so many of these issues. These are issues that I have spent so much time personally reflecting on and thinking about and trying to understand. And he does such a great job of, of kind of uh, deconstructing the issue and putting it before us in a way that really is actionable. There are some things that we can do. And we need to uh, observe that, understand that. It starts at home, as do so many other issues, and expands out through our our faith communities and into our community. I have these conversations periodically on this podcast because it's very important for us. When we talk about march or die, when we talk about moving forward, when it would be easier to stay where we are and die, this is a major component to that. If you claim to be a person of faith, you claim uh, Christ as your Savior, you are a Christian, So often it is the pressure applied by the world to the truth that we say we hold in Scripture that causes us to step back and say, I'm just going to stay where I am. What we understand, however, what we should understand is that meaningful forward movement, hope and purpose and direction, finding our identity in Christ, that is the only way we move forward when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. And yet, when we have a culture pushing back on us, we need to grab hold of the truth, figure out what we need to do to take those next step fo- steps forward and take those uh, steps very deliberately forward. That's what carries us forward. That's where the hope is found. And uh, again, so thankful for this. Uh, the title, Life in the Negative World, this is a heavy title because it is a heavy topic, but it is very hope-filled. And uh, I would love to see you go and grab a hold of that, uh, a copy of that, and uh, follow Aaron and his work. Take some time, if you have not yet, and go over to Life Audio, lifeaudio.com. Tremendous platform, hosts this podcast, hosts a number of other great podcasts, and uh, I would love for you to check those out as well. Thank you for joining, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. We've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. 
Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.